All right, guys. Welcome to another episode of Talk Energy with Yes Europe. And today our guest is Helene, and、uh, Helene is the head of climate policy at Greenpeace. And、um, we also have Pedro. Pedro is a winner of policy competition at Yes Europe. And、um, Helene,、uh, would you like to give a real brief introduction of yourself? Yeah, and thanks for having me. I'm the head of climate policy in Greenpeace Denmark. Just so we are clear on that.、Um, and I've been in Greenpeace for two years almost.、Um, started just before the pandemic, basically. So I just got to know my colleagues recently in real life. And before that, I used to work in the parliament. I was the climate advisor to the Green Party in the Danish parliament.、Um, so yeah, this is just what I've been doing most of my life and what I'm really into. Thank you, and Pedro. Yes, hello, hello, Honey and Elena. Thank you very much for having me as well. It's a pleasure.、Um, I am I am right now、uh, at at Rini at European Commission representation in Lisbon. I started last 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 Friday, and I'm also a European Climate Pact ambassador uh, since uh, since December. When I have time, I also try to do some stand up comedy, but not very well. Well, I hope. Well, I hope we have we have time today. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. So I want to start up our discussion by asking, you know, understanding more about Greenpeace itself. And so, Helene, could you introduce, you know, what is Greenpeace's mission, and maybe give us some successful examples of how you have shaped energy or climate policy. That's a really big question, but Greenpeace is,、uh, you know, this global environmental organization,、um, independent campaigning organization, and actually we turned fifty this year, so we have our our fifty year fifty anniversary,、um, and our mission is to like basically I know it sounds a bit fluffy, but our mission is to ensure that、uh, the ensure the ability of the earth to nurture life in all its diversity, so like. What I'm most focused on, since I'm in climate policy, is of course to to stop the worst consequences of the climate crisis, and and these years to make sure that we、um, that we implement the Paris Agreement.、Um, yeah. All right. Thank you. And um, uh, uh, could you、uh, give us, you know, ex- some examples that you feel particularly proud of that how you have helped. Shaping, you know, the the policy making for climate or for energy process. I think, from from my perspective, being in in Denmark and Europe, I think, and and regarding energy,、um, we are working quite hard to get fossil fuel phase outs, and that has、uh, been agreed in Denmark now, and it is now. Uh, uh, a thing going on in many countries in the world, like the conversation around the need to also end、uh, production of fossil fuels, and not only talk about the um, uh, um, the use of fossil fuels, is I think getting more mainstream than it than it has ever been, and that's something we've been working a lot on, especially in Denmark, and also from 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 my context and. We've been quite successful in making sure that we got a climate law in Denmark. We have you maybe you heard that we have this target of achieving a seventy percent reduction in twenty thirty, which is a pretty good target.、Uh, the problem is the way it has been been 
the action plans we are making right now to to achieve this target. But the target itself is quite okay. It's it is Paris compatible, you could say, and that that has also been an idea that originally generated from Greenpeace. It was one of our employees who who made the calculations to say, okay, this is this is the target we need to be Paris aligned in in Denmark. So oh, that is uh, very informative. Thank you. And um, just when you say you know seventy percent by twenty thirty is not enough, but what do you think are the challenges that's facing? Uh, I mean, Greenpeace in particular, in you know, accelerating this process, we're making this even faster. I think the biggest challenge right now is this this gap we see between words and action uh, from politicians all over the world. Uh, most prominent, probably in the the so-called green countries, the frontrunner countries, because this is where the the um, political betrayal is going on for, for real, you could say, like, I think that many of the things we are working for and trying to get um, mainstreamed into the conversation has in a way been rhetorically uh, become a part of the, of the central conversation. But now the problem is actually following these words with real action and timely action. And at least in most European countries, you would have politicians and, and business leaders and powerful people saying all the right things, but not not doing all the necessary things and not doing it fast enough. And I would also say like the postponement of actions. So even like, for example, with our target, so you would have plans that are maybe, maybe okay, but you would, you would have the, um, the people in, in power waiting too long to start the implementation of it, of it, like in 2025 or 2030 or 2040, or then we have these net zero targets in 2050. So, so like the biggest challenge is the, the, I would say the greenwashing, both from politicians, but also from the industry going on right now where everyone is saying the same thing and basically copying the language of climate activists, but not, not following it up with the necessary action. And I understand there are gaps and time lags about these promises. And uh, I want to understand a little bit more about, you know, exactly what Greenpeace is uh, uh, doing to push, to close this gap and uh, to shorten the time period. Could, could you give us some specific action items that Greenpeace has taken? Mm, we are working on so many levels, like I'm mostly doing the political work. So I would go and talk to the politicians and do a lot of media work and trying to reframe the conversation in the public debate and and work on this like more formal approach on, on changing the politics. But then, of course, we also have do actions um, Many online these days, but uh, also offline again after after the pandemic um, in in our countries at least uh, has has somehow passed. But um, like we work on all the levels that are available and also not available for us. Like we we go to the big meetings, uh, we go to the parliament, we go to the media, we go we we train the activists, we do the actions. Um, always uh, um, non-violent actions. Uh, so we just do everything we can to to try and change the, the minds of, of people and powerful people. 
everywhere we can. Uh, I appreciate that, and I understand it's a very big、uh, undertaking what Greenpeace is doing, trying to you know change how the government's how policy is making, and I reckon there is a lot of support that's needed、uh, to accelerate this process. So, what do you consider to be you know some of the biggest、uh, support? That Greenpeace or other similar,、uh, you know, advocates would need from the public to accelerate this process in in the policy making process. But I think it's a good point that we, we of course, if we want to change anything, we need the support of the people. Like Greenpeace is not going to change anything on its own. We can only do this if there's a critical mass of us demanding action. Um, I, I would say, like the the thing we need is just people demanding、um, our leaders to act responsibly and to listen to the science and to to do the necessary、uh, climate action. So basically, we just need people to not reiterate our demands because they can formulate their own demands. But we just need need like a critical mass、um, demanding. Leadership from our leaders. Yes,、um, I believe that、um, it's indeed the, that's the case, and、uh, that public support is definitely relevant because, as we have seen, the work of our politicians has not been enough for the past decades, and、uh, a lot of people would say, and I would agree, that if it wasn't for Greta Thunberg and、uh, her activism, we wouldn't have. As ambitious as、uh, climate policy as we have now, three years later since she she started, and and this brings us to the next question, Elena, because、um, we have seen that、um, we have worked in different positions connected to climate, such as think tanks, media, and political parties.、Uh, do you believe?、Um, Do you believe that、uh, the we can do meaningful change, taking individual action and uh, uh, pushing as we, as we often see to change our habits, or that uh, uh, in the end that will that will never be enough if we don't see a systemic uh, change at the level of the Danish government, the EU,、mm. our national governments? Yeah, definitely the last thing. Like if we don't have the systemic change, we won't be able to. To see the shift in 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 the way our society works at the scale that we need, so. But also, I would say, like we are now, like you you like you you're saying, like we've been trying to 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 do this for decades, and we haven't been successful enough yet at all. Like we are in an evolving climate crisis, and the consequences are really severe now. Like people are really dying. So, in order for us to 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 be successful, we need all levels to act in in some some cohesion. So we need the indi- individual action in 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 quotes,、uh, but but we need it initiated from a systemic level.、Um, there's no there's no、uh, groups in society or no levels that can just like pass it on and say, okay, th- this is for you guys to to handle. We all have to get get involved. With this, but it it it's it's never going to be like an individual responsibility to do something about this. Like you can do what you have the the ability and the、uh, the financial resources and whatever to do and the, whatever your conscience tells you to do. But it is when when it all comes down to it, a a responsibility of the ones in in power. 
Yes, thank you, Elena. My next question will be about a BBC news piece from December 2020 that says the decision of Denmark in ending all new oil and gas projects will cost more than 1 billion euros. How do you see measures taken by the Danish government in ensuring a just transition in terms of effectiveness and fairness taking into account and following the same piece, the relevance of oil money in funding the welfare state? First of all, I would say I don't... I disagree with the premises of that. Was it a BBC article saying that... it? The, 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 so the thing is, the Danish parliament decided last uh, December to end new license round uh, in, in the North Sea and to put an end date on production. So uh, they were just in the process of either they could decide to approve a new round, so you would give a license to um, to four oil companies, uh, or they could decide to reject it and say, okay, this is it, we've been... We've been doing this for decades. Now it's time for us to 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 basically phase out the production, and and then you could say, okay, this is going to cost some money in terms of the tax revenues that we won't get from the oil production in the North Sea. But that's only if you if you calculate it in this like um, um, like mainstream uh, uh, economic sense, where you actually believe that there's going to be money to make from oil and gas in in decades to come, if you use a an oil price scenario that's uh, uh, Paris aligned, then it, that won't be the case. You won't lose any money because there won't be any money to make for the oil industry. So, so I would say, like probably, of course, we will never know, but probably the Danish state has saved a lot of money on not not uh, allowing these these new license rounds because if we did allow new rounds and uh, an oil company decided to explore and um, uh, and produce for for decades to come then we as the Danish state would have to pay 20% of whatever they were to invest in the north sea and that's money that we we could never be sure to get back because that would only be if there was actually a profit to make from this oil exploration in decades to come. But all in all, like that's that was never the important thing about that agreement. Um, we have the Danish state has made lots of money from oil and gas in the North Sea since it started in the seventies. So you could also say, okay, maybe that was it. We've we had our our fun and then now it's time for us to as one of the richest countries in the world to actually listen to the science and say there's not there there is just isn't a carbon a carbon budget for new oil and gas uh, rounds anywhere in the world and if anyone is to do it then it should be us even though we were the biggest oil producer in the european union our production is relatively small globally so if anyone should be able to to face it out it should be us and so I'm really glad we took this decision, even though it's not good enough. And you could say that the end date uh, being 2050 is too late for for like a small wealthy country like ours. But now we've, we've done it. And that means that you have an, an um, like this was a really historic uh, decision because it is the first time that a relatively big oil producer uh, says, now we're going to end new new exploration. Um, that has never happened before. You would only have countries like Costa Rica and Belize and and countries uh, without any real production saying saying that we needed end dates. So 
So I think it has created a lot of global momentum, and I think we can really use this decision to make sure that other countries will follow suit. So, for example, if we can affect Norway and the UK and New Zealand or other big producers, then this this can really make make a global difference. Well, it, it's interesting you say the uh, price of oil might go down, and the oil business might oil business might be over soon anyway, but. In reality, we are seeing, say, the advertisement by oil companies pretty much just everywhere. You know, in the sports, in uh, the streets, anywhere you go. Mm. Uh, what what is Green Greenpeace doing on this regard? The advertisement yeah. of oil companies. Yeah, exactly. Because this advertising, it is even so, like it's. Only advertising—it's such a big part of our society, and it's such a big part of the fossil fuel industry's uh, efforts to try to affect us and try to make them seen as important and good and legit, being like legitimate actors in our society. So, so they are really using this, these advertising and sponsorships uh, to try to affect us as people, and that's why we've actually yesterday. Um, we've um, proposed this European citizen initiative to get a ban on fossil fuel ads and sponsorship. So, so I don't know if you know about this system, but if you collect one one million signatures within a year, you can uh, you can have the European Commission uh, uh, discuss and ultimately propose. Uh, um, like a suggestion that they can take our proposal and then reformulate a bit and then they have to propose to the European Parliament and, and the Council to actually make a, a legal ban on fossil fuel ads like we have with the tobacco industry that we've had since, um, when was it, 2002 maybe. So it's basically like we're, we're basically proposing the same thing. Tobaccos are really um, um, super dangerous and they can kill us. That's why we shouldn't actively advertise them in society, and the same goes with oil and gas and coal. I just want to, you know, tobacco. Of course, it's uh, detrimental to health. <clears throat> But、um, really, how necessary is it that we have to ban the、uh, oil company advertisement? Because there are so many、uh, fossil fuel products, from chemicals to fuels to other products. That's so prevalent in our daily life, and、uh, could you give us some reasoning? You know, why is it so necessary? I think it's really necessary because we know that, like, somewhere around ninety、uh, percent of global carbon emissions come from the fossil fuel industry, and we know that European fossil fuel-based companies,、uh, such as Total and Royal Dutch Shell. They are some of the some of the worst polluting companies in the entire world, and they use these、uh, large pools of money for advertising, not only to try to sell us their fossil fuel products. Like, how often do you see a an ad trying to sell you oil, coal, or gas? Like, they mostly use this as part of their. Public communications、uh, on climate disinformation and greenwashing, basically. So, so they're not only trying to sell us a product that we know is really unnecessary and、um, and dangerous, but they're also 
promoting all these false solutions to uh, uh, the climate crisis. And when they do this, they are really delaying action. So when these big, the biggest polluters in the world, when they try to make us believe that they are actually a part of the solutions and they're investing a lot of, in renewable energy and their uh, gas is a uh, fossil gas is a green transition fuel and we need a lot of carbon capture and storage technology and hydrogen and all these uh, um, all these different things that they try to promote as a part of the solution. And this just makes us, this is, of course, designed to make us um, believe that they are good guys, that they are actually working hard to solve the climate crisis. When we can just see from their numbers that even though they use like 80% of their ads on green stuff, they still use 80% of their money on, on fossil fuel production and extraction. So... So it's like the, also here, like the gap between what they're saying through their ads and what they're, they're actually doing in real life. Yeah, okay, okay. And I want to ask a second opinion as well. Pedro, are you seeing a lot of uh, advertisement from the oil company and do you consider the ban to be, uh, what's the necessity of banning these advertisements? Um, Absolutely. Absolutely, uh, we see it. Uh, we still see it everywhere, and alongside the, with the ban and following the exact same argument Ellen presented, and the comparison with tobacco. This is why I wrote my policy essay on banning the fossil fuel lobbying, because um, the consequences are. It's impossible to ignore the consequences. We have seen since 2010 more than 250 million euros spent by the big major five by the big five major oil companies, Exxon, BP, Chevron, Total, and Shell, um, that alone emit 10% of all CO2 since 1965. And their lobbies have met with the, with the, 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 the Junker com Commission from 2014-2019 327 times. So on average, once per week, you had a, a big oil five lobbyist meeting with the commission of, uh, of Juncker. And uh, this is definitely... This is definitely a big scandal because we have cases of revolving doors at the EU level of people leaving the EU and going to work um, lobbying for this for these companies. Then we we even have, as Ellen was saying as well, they promoting and sponsoring events such as UN climate talks and COPs, which goes directly against the whole point of having a talk to discuss um, and to try to take action. And so I believe that um, both banning fossil fuel. Um, advertising and limiting, in my opinion, banning absolutely the lobbying of fossil fuels at EU level and hopefully at national levels is relevant because we have seen that for decades they have knew what what they have been doing as 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 you can see on online on the hashtag Exxon Exxon New and um, yeah we came to this to this uh, situation in a big chunk of responsibility because of them. Okay, let's see it's uh, necessary. And um, now, Helen, I want to throw the question back to you. Um, what are the challenges in actually realizing this goal to, to make it into action? I think it's very much what Pedro describes. Like the, it is the lobbying. It is the power of these companies in our society, the direct access they have to our politicians and decision makers uh, all over the world. That is like the main main. And probably like only obstacle, like this ban would make a lot of sense. I think for a lot of people, this 
there's really no and also it's important to note we won't we're not suggesting that we ban the um, the use of fossil fuels right now we of course we have to phase it out everyone knows that but we're not saying from tomorrow on you shouldn't be able to buy gas for you or gasoline for your car of course we're not saying that we're just saying that they should not pollute our public spaces with their misleading and greenwashing ads any longer but i think the the obstacle is the the, the access they have to our decision makers via their massive lobbying as pedro describes so like and this is also why we're suggesting this this uh, ad ban because we we need to attack them from like every angle you can you can have all your climate science arguments and you can like be be like win every argument you have with with this industry but if you're not able to remove their 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 license to operate and and the way they are perceived in society uh, uh, as as somewhat a part of the solution um then we are, we're not going to be able to to succeed so we really need to to ban their ads and we need to remove their access to policy and we need to remove the social license to operate in our societies thank you elena one last question we would like to ask you um is related to to um, if you could provide um, advice to young students and energy professionals. We have seen you have interned in the past for UNFCCC, and uh, we would like to ask you in, in relation or not to your experience um, at the framework as well, um, if you could provide um, some advice and some tips for, for young professionals and students that are uh, listening to us. I think even so, I'm not sure it's super helpful or useful for, for young people right now, but like try and uh, do what you what you think is interesting and exciting. And don't don't focus too much on what will look good at your resume and uh, what can be the uh, the stepping stone for your next career move or whatever. Just find out what 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 you really desire to do and what makes you what you're really interested in and then just try to pursue this like basically just follow your heart and then I'm sure everything else is going to work out. Like, I, okay, I can sense you've been looking at my uh, resume and I know it, it looks like I've, I've had a plan maybe, like I've been doing a lot of climate things in a lot of different places, but basically I've, I just saw something I found interesting and then I just tried to, 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 to work on that for a couple of years. So there was never a big plan or a big scheme on how I ended up where I am today. Like one thing will lead to another. And then you, if you are, if you do what you, what you're interested in, then I'm sure you're, you're going to be great at this. And then people will notice and people will help you uh, further down your, your career. Thank you. I think uh, that's a really good suggestion. Just follow your heart. And with that, we will close our interview today. Thank you very much both.